her work at the newspaper, which I think often gets forgotten when we focus more on her life as a first lady, was just really set the stage for her later work. I mean, this was an opportunity for her to be right there with him, supporting him in his work at the newspaper. He was, of course, the editor, um, but she was doing the circulation. And that was a pivotal, a pivotal development at the time. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Show transcripts are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Florence Harding. 100 years after she served as the nation's first lady, she isn't among those most remembered. And if she is, it's for a vicious and untrue public relations stunt that has long tarnished her legacy. But she deserves to have the truth of who she was more broadly shared. Her savviness as a newspaper businesswoman that made an Ohio newspaper a powerhouse. Her use of newsboys to give young boys jobs that connected with the community. And her public relations strategy that made her an integral part of her husband's campaign success. In this episode, we learn more about the role of Florence Harding in journalism history and her husband's successful front porch campaign, and try to put to rest the rumor that she poisoned her husband. This is the second part of a two-part episode examining the journalism legacy of the Hardings. Our guest today is First Lady's historian Katie Sibley, the author of First Lady Florence Harding, Behind the Tragedy and Controversy. Katie, welcome to the show. How did you get interested in studying Florence Harding in the first place? Oh, thank you so much for having me, Perry. It's a pleasure to be here. My interest in Florence Harding extends from an unlikely place. I was working on a Soviet spies in the 1920s, but I got very interested in that decade of the 1920s here in the United States, which along with teaching women's history at my college, St. Joseph's University, I realized that there was you know, some interest in these women of the 1920s. And so I had the opportunity to write a book about uh, Florence when I realized that the series on first ladies didn't have one and they kindly offered me the chance to write about her. And I was so excited to do that. I was welcomed by people in Marion, Ohio, who gave me uh, all kinds of helpful resources and other resources I found. And I've realized that one of the things that really intrigued me about Florence was that she had been so maligned and so trivialized and treated misogynistically that there was just a lot there to uncover and kind of show in a new way. And that was very exciting for me. Florence married Warren in 1891 and would spend the next 15 years playing a significant role in the Marion Star, helping run the newspaper. Newspaper legend William Allen White noted she did a man's work. Uh, so misogynistic, as you kind of mentioned before. Uh, tell us what roles and impact she had at the newspaper. Oh, it's, it's a fascinating story because it, it really, her work at the newspaper, which I think often gets forgotten when we focus more on her life as a first lady, was just really set the stage for her later work. I mean, this was an opportunity for her to be 
right there with him, supporting him in his work at the newspaper. He was, of course, the editor, um, but she was doing the circulation. And that was a pivotal, a pivotal development at the time, because up until then, very few papers really had a proper circulation system. Uh, customers would come to the newspaper office and get their paper, but that could be sort of catch as catch can. What she did was institute the system of newsboys. I guess they were always boys. And they went around and uh, distributed the papers and collected the money. And so this put the business on a, a sure financial footing. And Florence, of course, had a background. Her father had been a businessman and she had trained really under him in his dry goods business. So she had a very good head for numbers and this kind of thing. Although she was actually trained as a pianist as well. She had many talents. Um, one of the things that she really loved doing at the paper was kind of leading this group of newsboys, which became for her who had kind of a sad history with her son. She had a son in her first marriage, not with Warren, and then um, basically had to kind of give him up to her father to raise because she was unable to raise it, raise him, Marshall, who was named herself, because her husband, first husband was kind of a ne'er-do-well. So by herself, she um, couldn't really raise her son. She didn't really have the means to do that, although she was playing piano. Um, so here was her chance then to kind of work with a group of young boys and lead them and be kind of a maternal figure as well as, I think maybe more importantly in the long run, she had the opportunity to work with um, with Warren side by side. And this was something very important to her because it was really a key part of who she was. She was a career woman and she continued to be a career woman with Warren. Now, obviously his career was perhaps more visible, more important, but she was the one who really was key in developing that, in fostering his work and helping to promote him. I don't want to say that she made him. I think that's been a caricature uh, kind of thrown at her, um, but she certainly helped to facilitate his path toward politics. And the newspaper really was the beginning of their close um, relationship there. One of the most famous stories about Florence is that she spanked the newsboys. So tell us if that's true. And then talk a little bit more about her relationship with those boys. Okay. And I shouldn't laugh because of course that, that is abusive, isn't it? Um, but there, there, I laugh because this is the caricature of Florence, right? That she was this kind of paradin, this shrewish woman. So who would be surprised to hear that? Of course, she spanked the newsboys. Well, apparently she did. Um, I don't know if this was very often, but there were complaints about it. One in particular from a famous a former newsboy, Norman Thomas, who later ran for president. Um, but other newsboys were very close to her for their whole lives. One of them was a man called um, Ora Reddy Baldinger, and he became sort of her aide de camp in the White House. So he clearly had fond feelings for her. He stayed with her um, through his uh, through his life. And again, as you mentioned, it was a cutting edge use of these uh, young young boys to uh, sell and distribute newspapers because not just we often have an image of newsboys as being these sort of hawkers on the street, but they were going around to the houses. They were promoting the circulation of the paper. So it was a more kind of efficient and really, um, you might say, just a, a very carefully thought out plan to develop uh, a growing circulation for the paper. And the paper thrived from this. I mean, when before uh, Florence and Warren, well, actually Warren had the paper before her, once she married him and got involved, the paper became a very, um, very lucrative. And in fact, it provided them a very comfortable living then and later. So um, it's very interesting, I think, to, to look at how Florence had a big role in that, very important, important role. And she did have some landmark moments as well. One was that apparently she received 
one of the first wires to come in uh, to the paper during the Spanish-American War. I mean, she didn't write for the paper herself, which is a little disappointing, I think, but she certainly was someone who made it um, a more effective paper. And it actually still goes on, I believe, to this day in Marion, Ohio. So um, an important legacy there from the Hardings. Beyond newspaper history, Florence also played a significant role in public relations history and presidential campaigns history in 1920. You note that advertising pioneer Albert Lasker made the Hardings celebrities. Talk about their public relations strategies and use of media. Oh, yes. It's, it's a fascinating, it's really a fascinating story. Um, so, yes, Albert Lasker. So he's famous for promoting um, these uh, pork and beans, uh, Van Camp's pork and beans, in the days when uh, housewives would boil their beans on the stove for hours on end. And now they could get them in cans. And, you know, there was a, there was an advertising a campaign that facilitated that. And of course, you know that advertising is sort of uh, intrinsically linked with the 1920s, but they were really the first to bring it about in a, a political campaign using, for instance, um, his methods of kind of mass circulation of uh, the sort of the words of Harding through recordings. Um, there were speeches that he gave. You can still listen to them on YouTube. They're a little old, but you can hear them. Um, in addition to that, there were pins, uh, there were billboards. Um, there was a, a kind of a mass, uh, I guess you could say mass marketing effort. They spent about $1.5 million on that aspect alone, not, not counting what they spent on the campaign and travel and the other things that they did. There were, um, for instance, I think something very much that your listeners might imagine, newsreels in the theaters, right? So uh, pictures of them. And this, I think, plays into the question you had about their celebrity status. They were very uh, popular, and I'll talk more about this um, in a little bit when we talk about the front porch campaign, but they were very popular in Hollywood. They had a quite a following among some of the leaders uh, in, the, in the movie industry, uh, both actors and directors, and uh, very unusual perhaps for Republicans to have that particular following. But they were visible, they were active, and they embraced the new technology, and they themselves became celebrities as a result. I mean, and this was very interesting uh, contrast to the previous president, who, as you know, by the end of uh, his term, was basically in his bedroom, uh, pretty much uh, horizontal, so and, and not very visible. Of course, I'm talking about Woodrow Wilson. Um, and this was a very a kind of a great contrast here, along with other contrasts on their policies, et cetera. And of course, Harding wasn't running against Wilson, but there was still this presence of him in a way. He was running against another Ohio newspaper man called Cox, as it turned out. But his presence and her presence um, were very, very visible and very cutting edge. And that celebrity status, that use of the media, that use of uh, films and uh photo ops uh, continues through the White House. And so there are some very famous uh, pictures of them, for instance, of Florence being filmed when she's uh, greeting these Filipino women who came as part of the delegation for Filipino independence, or even when she got very ill in the White House, inviting people to come and see the Mayo Clinic uh, men come and help her get better. There was just this sense that she had this kind of attuned nature to how important it was to connect with the media and to make themselves visible. And that probably won't surprise your listeners because, of course, she had been a newspaper woman, but she also moved into this more, I guess you could say, cutting edge sense of, of filmmaking and picture taking uh, that was, you know, the sort of the photo op that we think of today. One of their most famous strategies was the Front Porch campaign, as you just mentioned, uh, which you note in your book was chiefly orchestrated by Florence and which attracted close to half a million people. Why did they take this approach and how did it work? Yes, it's it's really um, a fun uh, sort of 
idea to think about all these people gathering at their house, right, in uh, in Ohio. And of course, it made sense. It was a lot less work. They could just open up the house. But of course, it was a lot of or open up the porch, I should say. But it was a lot of work, too. It was very exhausting because they had visitors coming um, day after day. What would happen was people would gather in the early afternoon, and then they would parade to the Harding uh, lawn. And then there would be a little speech by Warren. And uh, lots and lots of people would come. There was one day in particular called First Voters Day when all these young people came. And I'm assuming uh, women of all ages came too because they were, they were voting for the first time. And it was a really hot day and people were just collapsed everywhere, but uh, all around the, the, the lawn and on the porch. But Florence just kept going after shaking many, many hands. And you know, to get back to your question about, about how she was instrumental in this, I mean, part of what was extremely, I think, uh, instrumental in Florence's role in the in the campaign, and this was something that Harding, of course, completely agreed with, was their folksy approach. I mean, one of the ways that they wanted to contrast themselves with the Wilsons, who, of course, had been in for two terms and by the end had pretty much shut up the White House for quite some time, um, in part as a war measure to uh, save uh, the cost of mowing the lawn. They brought sheep in to uh, kind of take care of the grass, but it meant that the White House was closed off to everyone uh, except for those who were you know, close to the Wilsons. And so what that meant for Florence, she would walk by and there was one point where she slipped in the mud nearby and some policeman chased her away. And this is when she was a Senate wife, of course. And she was like, I am determined, you know, to open this White House to everyone if we get elected. And so I think the front porch kind of exemplifies that openness, that accessibility, that visibility. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to connect. Um, and when they were in the White House, of course, it was very similar. They would spend hours. I mean, imagine this hours and hours shaking hands. I mean, it was exhausting. You might think perhaps they had better uses of their time. But this was really a priority to them, this kind of folksiness. And I think what's interesting for us as historians looking back on the front porch is how it brought such a wide array of people together. So one of the groups that came was the Harding Coolidge Theatrical League. This included Lillian Gish, Al Jolson, a number of other celebrities. Um, Jolson sang a number of songs for the Hardings, um, including one, you know, definitely dedicated to Harding. Um, and it's, you go know, again, it's very interesting to think about this uh, this cultivation of celebrity culture. These celebrities came to the Hardings, the Hardings embraced them and then continued their methods uh, on into the White House, bringing in other celebrities. Uh, celebrities like Madame Curie and Albert Einstein too, by the way. I know we often think of the Hardings as not particularly intellectual, but they certainly appreciated the scientists of their time. In addition though, the others who came to the front porch were much more uh, modest people. Groups of women came, groups of bicyclists came, um, African-American groups came, all kinds of people found found this kind of an irresistible opportunity to connect um, with the front porch and the Hardings there. And one of the other, I think, interesting elements is that this kind of access, this kind of visibility that the front porch exemplified continued on into the time when the Hardings were in the White House. They shook hands for hours with visitors, for example. And this, of course, would continue into their trips across the country, most particularly the trip to Alaska, which um, was an exhausting jaunt. Every time they stopped, they shook hands for hours. So it, the front porch, which, of course, wasn't pioneered by them, 
I mean, this was uh, William McKinley had also his own front porch campaign, but certainly they took it to a bigger extent and they got, um, uh, I think, a much more of a publicity role. But I do want to mention that the front porch wasn't the uh, total sum of their campaign at all. We've already talked about the use of uh, sophisticated advertising techniques, the Lasker methods, etc. But in addition to that, they also traveled um, about 20,000 miles over that fall um, very, uh, very, very actively. And they had to deal with some particularly difficult issues. Um, it's fascinating to look at that campaign. You might not think about this today, but uh, race emerged in the campaign. Um, Harding was uh, was called uh, African-American by some of the people who did not like him at all. Um, and to his credit, he didn't deny it. You know, he basically didn't really uh, address the uh, charge. He said privately, you know, who knows? There had been in his family abolitionists. Um, it's very interesting. So it was a difficult charge, obviously, in 1920. It was very uh, racist time in our country. But I think to his credit, and this carried on when he was in the White House as well, when he reached out to African-Americans, he gave a famous speech in Birmingham. I won't go as far as to say that he supported uh, social equality um, between blacks and whites. He certainly sadly did not, but he supported political equality. And I think uh, the fact also that his platform included the first anti-lynching um, statement uh, since really the 1870s is something that should be mentioned as well. So if she wasn't the first first lady with prior media experience, Florence was definitely one of the first uh, who had some kind of media, media savvy to her. So with this kind of background, what was her relationship like with the press during her, her White House years? Oh, I, it, was, it was. This is what is, I think, so interesting, Terry, because we think back and the reputation of, of Florence Harding and her husband, of course, is is often pretty dismal, which is something that I tried to work on in my book and others have done so as well. Um, but it still remains in the popular culture. We'll be talking more about that later in the hour, I know. But with the press at the time, she had a very good relationship. And it probably won't surprise your listeners, given her background as a newspaper woman, she knew what kinds of things were important, what kinds of things would appeal to the press, what, what sort of effort she could make to facilitate, to open doors. I mean, again, I've mentioned her accessibility and their accessibility with the public. So for instance, when Harding would have his big state dinners, um, dinners for maybe the State Department people or visiting diplomats or whatever particular organization, the Washington Conference, which was a big international uh, confab that happened in 1921-22, she would bring the press in to see the layout of the dinner and who was going to be there and what was going to happen. She made sure they were well aware of the kinds of things. And you might say, well, of course, she wanted you know good publicity. But she went out of her way to really open doors and give them access. Now, she herself did not give interviews in part. She was concerned, I think, to do anything to uh, that could perhaps be construed in a way that could hurt her husband. You know, she didn't want to be, um, I think she, she didn't want to sort of overtake him in any way there. But on the other hand, she was definitely attuned to what the press was up to. And this is part of this kind of celebrity culture, as we've talked about, that the she and Warren cultivated they wanted to be seen, they wanted to be visible, and they 
one of the things I think that is most striking about her reaching out to the press, I mentioned before when she was ill, you know, the movie men came and, you know, sort of understood the story. Now contrast that to when John F. Kennedy, for example, had Addison's disease or even Eisenhower had a heart condition. I mean, a number of presidents have had uh, issues and often, and first ladies as well, and often the public is not told about these things. But she went out of her way to make sure the public knew that she had another onset of her um, very, very uh, damaging illness. Uh, this was nephritis. It was a kidney ailment. And in those days, they had very little they could do. There wasn't dialysis. Basically, they had to sweat it out. And you can imagine how horrific that would be. It was it was a very, very dangerous condition. She's had this since about 1905, um, off and on. And so always recovered. But she one reason why she had to rely very much on her doctor, Charles Sawyer, because she often needed a medical help. So in 1922, they went on a trip on the, um, the, the Mayflower, their little boat they would take to the Potomac and sail around. And she she came back very ill and basically the rest of that year was like September of 22. She was very ill. She began to get better, but she told the public about this and she told the press. So as a result, people were concerned. They were praying for her. Um, she of course had a very strong uh, will to get better and she did at least at that time. But I, I mentioned that as an example of her openness with the press and their, uh, their appreciation of her concern. And again, I'll, I'll just underline that when she died and there was great, and even when they left office after his death, of course, a few uh, years so before she died in 1924, there was the kind of encomiums in the press, the kind of appreciation for them. And you might say, oh, well, sure, you know, somebody's leaving office and died, Warren dies in August of 1923, of course they're going to be sympathetic. But there really was a special connection, I think, that she had um, with the press. And part of that was that she made the White House a destination. She reached out to people. She made it accessible. People walked the grounds. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people walked the grounds. It's estimated that maybe a million over the course of their entire time there because she had band concerts and, you know, there were flowers uh, put up I and mean, she wanted people to come. And again, this, I think, opened up to the press as well and made her more um, uh, of a, you know, a visible and a, a very accessible and a much appreciated member uh, uh, in the White House. You know, today she's one of the forgotten first ladies. Um, and, and as you've just been saying, I mean, there was so much public interest in her during her time. You know, be, beyond what you've already said, what do you think that she brought to the first lady position and, and why the public was so interested in her? Oh, yes. A wonderful, uh, wonderful question. And I love to sing <laughs> Florence's praises. Although, of course, you know, she was a human being as well. And she had her she had her flaws and she had her issues. But I think what drew people to her was her, her energy and her focus. Now, I did mention she, of course, was ill for, you know, some six months or so, but she wasn't ill all the time. And she was extremely, um, as we've mentioned, outgoing and very concerned about a number of causes, which we haven't really had a chance to uh, uh, delve into just yet. But I do want to mention that, of course, this was the first first lady. Florence was the first first lady to vote for her husband um, in 1920. And this was, of course, a moment of women's a vote. Of course, I want to emphasize white women, uh, black women in most of the country, or I should say most black women in the country could not vote at this time because of the Jim Crow laws in effect. But for those who could vote, she reached out. She wanted to see more women become Republican. Of course, she was a partisan. Um, she worked with uh, Republican 
Republican groups, but she was very excited about this whole idea of women's activism. And beyond the partisan edge of that, she also was very interested in women's involvement in uh, in the workplace and in and having careers. And she didn't see any reason why they shouldn't. So in some ways, despite the fact that she was 60 when she went into the White House, and you might think of her as kind of a woman raised in the Victorian era, she was a very modern women, woman. I mean, she had had to support herself um, at teaching piano after her first husband left her and she was sort of uh, on her own. She also, of course, tried to support her son as best she could. By this time, he did have, uh, he had married and had children and she was close to her grandchildren. So nevertheless, she was a very modern woman in her interest in women's activism and her cultivation of it. At one point, um, one of the local Republican groups in Philadelphia reached out to her and wanted her to come to their gathering, but she decided not to because she thought then she would have to go to all of these kinds of gatherings and it would be you know, pretty difficult. But she definitely encouraged women's activism. Now, in addition to that, she was always concerned about animal rights and she made efforts to reach out um, to protect, for instance, um, uh, sea life. She was very concerned about the treatment of animals, for instance, in rodeos. Uh, she went to one rodeo with her friend Evelyn, and she was just sickened what she saw um, with the animals there. Uh, she, uh, in addition to that, she was very concerned about prisoners. And one of the sort of lesser known aspects of her activism was her concern for women prisoners and her efforts that helped bring about Camp Alderson, which is a, a federal prison for women, still going uh, to this day. But usually it's given the credit for that is given to Eleanor Roosevelt. But in fact, it was, it was really Florence who behind the scenes was helping to get this going. And I want to emphasize um, Florence's interest here in, in these reform causes, because of course this was you know, the sort of the tail end of the progressive era. And she picked up many of those pieces and promoted them, women's activism, um, the furtherance of uh, you know reforms in prisons, this kind of thing. So you might say, well, if that was not so well known, why does why do people? How did people at the time, you know, how did they uh, kind of gravitate to her? Well, again, I emphasize her visibility, but also, you know, her outspokenness. I think on women, and she was very accessible to the press, as we talked about. So people knew that she was someone who had um, had a lot of interests and concerns. Uh, another way that she contributed that was really very appealing to people was her concern about veterans from World War One. So she would go and visit them at the hospital, uh, but also she would invite those who were no longer in the hospital, but you know, permanently maimed in many cases, uh, to her to her parties that she would have at the White House, and she would bring them close in. She would allow them to touch her face. She would sign autographs for them. She was extremely connected with veterans, and I think in this way she set the stage. I mean, so would Mary Lincoln been concerned about. Veterans too. This perhaps isn't new, but she set the stage with her activism here. Remember, it's going along with her husband's interest in setting up the Veterans Bureau to support veterans. Now, there was a scandal around the Veterans Bureau. It's true, but I would argue that the Hardings did not um, know about that until it developed, and then, of course, he immediately made sure that Mr. Forbes was out of office. So, I always cite this as an example of. A scandal that happened to the Harding administration, a leader at the Veterans Bureau who was uh, a really problematic character, um, was absconding with money. I mean, just just a bad guy, Forbes. But on the other hand, Florence, you know, right away, she heard about it. He said, you know, he's got to go. And he was um, he was forced to resign. So they didn't put up with scandals uh, later. Of course, other scandals emerged after they left office. But I, I would argue that they did not know about these at the time. Um, so unfortunately, to our present uh, moment and, and recent and years before us, the Hardings are shrouded in this 
this sort of veil of scandal, but there was so much they did at the time that was positive and, and helpful that often gets forgotten. And I do want to mention again, Harding reaching out to blacks and also uh, Warren G. Harding and, and Florence as well. And also um, his pardoning of Eugene Debs, who had been put in jail as a, um, a resistor to World War One. That was one of the things that Harding did. So they were really, you know, they were forward thinking in a number of ways. Unfortunately, not on immigration. I mean, let's be clear there. Uh, certainly Harding did not favor um, expanding the continuing the expansion of immigration and helped to shut it down, which continued, of course, with the uh, rulings in 1924 with uh, Calvin Coolidge. But back to your point, just briefly to sum up on this issue of why she what she brought to the position, I would say that, you know, her activism, her visibility, her kindness, her folksiness, this um, accessibility that she had. And, um, you know, I think there was a genuine love she had for the American people. And they uh, they gravitated to that. And this the veterans connection really harked back, I think, to her own struggles, someone who had, remember, very much serious physical ailments. Um, and so she could connect with the struggles of others, empathize with it. And it was very affecting for people. I think they, they appreciated that. So as you alluded to, the Harding's collective memory is is very much tied to scandal. So, I mean, despite her own media savvy, it's unfortunate that today no one remembers Florence. And if they do, it's because she was the victim of a vicious PR stunt, uh, the accusation that she poisoned Warren, uh, who died when they were on a cross-country trip in 1923. How did that rumor get started and why do you think it managed to stick? Oh, yes, that's a great question. So um, there was this just horrible man called Gaston Means. I mean, he was a, he was a criminal, basically. Um, he was a criminal who had actually tried to force um, Evelyn McLean to uh, fork over $100,000. He extorted, he extorted it from her. Evelyn, by the way, was, of course, a friend of Florence's, very wealthy woman. So he said, you know, give me money and that'll help me recover the Lindbergh baby. Of course, it was, it was ridiculous. He was charged uh, with grand larceny. He was put in jail. So Gaston Means, uh, a criminal. Okay, now we've established that. However, he goes on to write this book called The Strange Death of President Harding, which um, was a widely, before it was sort of recovered and taken off the shelves because of his going to jail. Many people read it and said, oh, yes, yes, of course, he died because she poisoned him. Because, of course, you know, we know he was having all these affairs. So I should mention the affairs because um, this was part of the reason that her, her reputation, it's so unfair why she should be blamed for her husband's affairs, but yet it has continued to this day. Um, earlier, he had a relationship with a woman called Carrie Phillips, um, and Florence was aware of that relationship. And of course, she was very, um, very saddened by this, went on for about 15 years. But by the time they ran for president, um, she was apparently paid off and she no longer sort of haunted their, well, I shouldn't say she was haunting Warren's life, but no longer haunted Florence's. But after the Hardings left office and after Florence died, there were um, there was pressure from another quarter on this issue. And that, of course, was Nan Britton, a very young woman who had an affair with Harding as well and had a child. Um, so she wrote a book called, first she pressured the family to pay her off. And they did for a while, the Harding family, um, uncles and aunts and brothers, etc. Harding. And so when that happened, uh, that kept her quiet. But once they stopped paying her because they were sort of disgusted with it, she published her book, The President's Daughter. So in 1927, we have this book emerge. And of course, um, eventually she was charged with making it up. I, there was a lawsuit and this and that. But you may know, and your listeners will probably know as well, that in 2015, um, a man emerged who, through a DNA test, was able to demonstrate that he was a second cousin of uh, a grandnephew of Harding 
Harding. So it seems likely that Harding did have this relationship with Nan Britton, a very much younger woman, much younger than Carrie Phillips was, and that there was a child. Uh, but I'm not, I do not know if Florence knew about that or not. But all I'm trying to suggest here by bringing all these in is that this, this suggestion of the president's daughter, even though at the time it was debunked, um, the rumors about Carrie, which we know were accurate because there were there were letters, many letters that he wrote to Carrie. Um, and then we have, you know, Gaston Means alleging that she poisoned her husband. On top of that, there was a man called um, Samuel Hopkins Adams, who wrote a couple of books about the Hardings in the 20s and 30s that were extremely scarless, again, played up those scandals. And in this case, not so much the scandals perhaps about the, uh, the president's daughter, but more the scandals about the Teapot Dome, uh, the idea of people in Hardy's administration being willing to sell off uh, oil and get benefits for themselves, the cabinet secretaries, etc., Albert Fall in the Interior uh, Department. Um, Harry Doherty also considered a scandal maker, although he was never actually um, fully charged with that. But there were some questionable things definitely that went on in the enforcement of prohibition. So all of those scandals have shrouded the reputation of the Hardings, whether it was about prohibition enforcement, whether it was about, you know, selling off, giving off goodies to uh, oil companies, and then the reputation around her, her married life. And then you, on top of that, in the 1930s, there's a very uh, well-regarded book at the time, Crowded Hours by Alice Roosevelt Longworth, which sort of portrayed Florence herself as a kind of angry drinks toting you know because of course they were violating prohibition actually they weren't because remember you could drink a prohibition if you had an existing stock and these uh these ideas that harding was a big drinker i think are definitely overblown earlier in his life he had kind of carried on a bit but you know, he had to go to a sanitarium back in the 1890s for some of that excess but um i i don't see any evidence that that was continuing in the white house however uh, these reputations uh, were nevertheless kind of uh, kind of enshrined by books like uh, alice's alice roosevelt longworth's crowded hours the Adams books, the Gaston Means um, portrayal of her as a as a as a poisoner of her husband, angry about the affairs, angry about his treatment. Right? Um, of course, she must have poisoned him. Now, you might say, well, okay, that's all in the twenties and thirties. I mean, surely by now we've gotten past that. Um, but actually, sadly, another really pivotal book was written in the late sixties um, by Francis Russell, who was a very uh, popular writer at the time, a journalist. He worked for Time Life Books, and his book was called The Shadow of Blooming Grove. And this book, I mean, by the title, perhaps. Uh, your listeners may hear an allusion to the allegation that um, Harding was uh, was black. So um, it's interesting that in the 60s, the height of the civil rights movement, uh, Francis Russell would uh, sadly go down that path, but um, there he did. So what we have in that book is a really scathing portrayal of Florence, that she was, you know, brittle as an autumn leaf, that she was this kind of controlling harridan, this shrew. And of course, what, what Russell was trying to do was explain why Harding might have had these affairs, why he had this controlling wife. After all, her nickname was the Duchess. He did call her the Duchess. I think it was a, 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 a term of endearment, but um, uh, Russell didn't see it that way. So that book was, was a pretty powerful, um, pivotal book in a lot of ways. Russell had gotten hold of the Carrie Phillips letters, although interestingly, he wasn't allowed to publish them at the time. They remained secret, um, locked up until 2014. Such a crazy story, these Hardings. But he had these very suggestive ellipses in the book, uh, pointing out, aha, you know, obviously there were love letters there. Um, and there were. So he was right about that. But the portrayal of Florence, and I've also looked at some letters that were not in the book 
letters that Russell wrote to friends back in Marion, Ohio, when he was working on it, which portrayed his view of her. He actually suggested that if she had been more buxom, you know, Harding might have stayed happy in Marion and never, you know, foolishly gone off to become president. But instead, he was married to this brittle hermaphrodite, he calls her. Um, most, much of this, of course, is, is a lot of anti-female uh, rhetoric, right? He didn't like, clearly Russell didn't like strong women, and he was determined to, you know, find some uh, something problematic about them. So that, all this is to say, it was long, sorry, probably too long for your listeners, perhaps, historiographical um, uh, train here, right? Now we're in the 60s, and you think, well, all right, now it's been 50 years. Surely things have gotten better. But even um, more recently, Carl Anthony wrote a more sympathetic portrayal uh, of called First Lady in the Jazz Age, Carl Sofrazza Anthony. And this book is uh, much more, I think, sympathetic to Florence, but largely the book is still about Harding and his affairs. And while he doesn't allege, of course, that Gaston, as Gaston Means did, you know, back almost 100 years ago, that Florence poisoned uh, Harding, Anthony suggests that she was not perhaps uh, assertive enough at the end in the California Hotel, the Palace Hotel, where Harding had had his... Um, sort of his collapse. She was not assertive enough to uh, push the doctors to kind of do more. But I would argue that those doctors really were not um, very, very knowledgeable about what was going on with Harding. He basically had, uh, some people thought it was a stroke, but basically he had a heart attack. And, you know, even today people have, you know, half a million heart attacks a year, like the one he had and don't, and today we can do more about this. But at that time it was, it was difficult to understand. And certainly those doctors were not um, as well versed in these kinds of things. Thing. So they were her doctors too, and she completely trusted them. I mean, Charles Sawyer took care of her till the end. But what is, I think, really important is that even today, when you look this up on websites, etc., you will still find allegations from Means, uh, not his name anymore, but the allegation of poisoning is still there. Um, oftentimes, it's brought up that she wouldn't allow an autopsy, which suggests, right? Oh, no autopsy. Clearly, she must have known what was going on with him and didn't want people to know she poisoned him. But no, I, I would argue she didn't want an autopsy because she didn't want his body uh, to be uh, de deformed as it would have been in an autopsy. She, she to, to kind of to that point, I mean, at the end, remember they're in California, the body has to be brought all the way back across the country. Very moving. Many people out in the wee hours of the night watching the train go by. She purposely slowed it down when they went through crowds so people could look in and see his casket. And then it comes back to the White House where she stays for a few days there. And he, there's another big funeral there. And when that's going on, she goes to visit his casket. Now, you can't imagine why, how would she want an autopsy if this is, you know, her sense of wanting to connect with him. And I would argue that certainly she knew of his flaws. I mean, she knew of these affairs. She certainly knew about Carrie Phillips. Uh, that was a long affair. But there isn't evidence that she poisoned him. But yet, I think people just have fun sort of lumping together all these scandals and kind of hurling them upon the Hardings. But they're actually so much more interesting than that, as I hope I've uh, suggested in this uh, discussion we've been having. So to kind of tie that all together, uh, we're doing this show, of course, because it's now the 100th anniversary of the Hardings' election to the White House. So to tie that all together, why do they deserve to be remembered in history? Oh, yes. So I would say it's a fascinating story. The Hardings were not in office that long. It wasn't even a full uh, term. Um, 
But they came in at a pivotal moment, right? This is the first time that women are voting. This is also a moment of great uh, change in the United States, uh, change in that the United States is becoming a more modern place. The advertising, the movie industry, all of those things we've talked about. It's a moment as well of kind of contraction and resistance to that change. This is, of course, the decade of the, you know, the Scopes uh, trial and um, a lot of clashes between urban folks and city, uh, rural folks. And the Hardings are sort of in the middle of all that. They come from a small town, but they're, you know, clearly um, sophisticated enough to travel around the country and um, connect with scientists and other people and uh, speak truth about race relations and about uh, trouncing uh, the rights of people who resist war efforts. But I think more particularly to Florence, I would argue that she really made the cracks in the mold that Eleanor Roosevelt broke, right? I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt, to all of your listeners, will be the first lady who really went the furthest um, in so many ways, right, in her progress uh, toward uh, better race relations, in her activism, in her visibility, um, well before, say, someone like Hillary Clinton. But what we have, though, with Florence is someone who begins to make that possible by standing alongside her husband and saying, you know, yes, you know, women can have careers and I had one myself or yes, it's important to, you know, reach out to those in our society like these poor veterans who are struggling. Uh, other first ladies had reached out to struggling people before, obviously Ellen Wilson and Nellie Taft. But you have with Florence someone who's able to have more of a platform for that as a voter at a time when more um, women uh, were voting. So it's this pivotal moment in time when a lot of things are changing. It's the opportunity and platform, which, you know, I wish uh, all first ladies would use or first gentlemen when we have uh, some of those uh, for good, for pushing forward um, activism. And while Ellen Wilson had certainly tried to do that, um, and Nellie Taft had, both of them had had very poor health, um, which had sort of short-circuited their efforts to go further uh, with, for instance, Ellen trying to improve things for Blacks in uh, Washington, or Nellie trying to improve things for office workers. But Florence had more of a time. She had more time to do this, and there were effects, at long-lasting effects, like the prison I mentioned, that came from her time period and um, her urgency toward women to get involved in, in politics as well. Well, so I think that you could say that why they need to be, why they should be remembered, I think, or why she deserves in particular to be remembered is her visibility and her um, concern for a number of causes, which paved the way for later first ladies to be activists as well. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Carrie. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, and additional thanks to our sponsor, Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night, and good luck. Good luck.